please open a Bible to Exodus chapter 12. It's on page 64 if you're using the church Bible. And we're going to pick up at Exodus 12.33. It's right at the climactic moment in the story when Israel finally leaves Egypt. Pharaoh has consistently rejected God's word of warning. The final terrible tenth plague has come. God has passed through the land and struck the firstborn of all the Egyptians, but he has passed over the houses of Israel where the blood of the lamb is put on the doorpost. And that's right where we come in at the great escape, the moment of Exodus from Egypt. I'm going to read Exodus 12, 33 through the end of chapter 13. Again, it's a little bit longer portion. Give your attention to the reading of God's word. The Egyptians were urgent with the people to send them out of the land in haste. For they said, we shall all be dead. So the people took their dough before it was leavened, their kneading bowls being bound up in their cloaks on their shoulders. The people of Israel had also done as Moses told them, for they asked the Egyptians for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians, so that they let them have what they asked. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. And the people of Israel journeyed from Ramses to Sakoth, about 600,000 men on foot, besides women and children. A mixed multitude also went up with them, and very much livestock, both flocks and herds. And they baked unleavened bread cakes, or sorry, unleavened cakes of the dough they had brought out of Egypt. For it was not leavened, because they were thrust out of Egypt and could not wait nor had they prepared any provisions for themselves. The time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years, on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. It was a night of watching by the Lord to bring them out of the land of Egypt. So this same night is a night of watching, kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel throughout their generations. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, This is the statute of the Passover. No foreigner shall eat of it, but every slave that is bought for money may eat of it after you have circumcised him. No foreigner or hired worker may eat of it. May eat of it. it shall be eaten in one house. You shall not take any of the flesh outside the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. All the congregation of Israel shall keep it. If a stranger shall sojourn with you and would keep the Passover to the Lord, let all his males be circumcised. Then he may come near and keep it. He shall be as a native of the land. But no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. There shall be one law for the native and for the stranger who sojourns among you. All the people of Israel did just as the Lord commanded Moses and Aaron. And on that very day, the Lord brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt by their hosts. The Lord said to Moses, Consecrate to me all the firstborn. Whatever is the first to open the womb among the people of Israel, both of man and of beast, is mine. Then Moses said to the people, Remember this day in which you came out from Egypt, out of the house of slavery, for by a strong hand, the Lord brought you out from this place. No leavened bread shall be eaten. Today, in the month of Abib, you are going out. 
And when the Lord brings you out into the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, which he swore to your fathers to give you, a land flowing with milk and honey, you shall keep this service in this month. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, and on the seventh day there shall be a feast to the Lord. Unleavened bread shall be eaten for seven days. No leavened bread shall be seen with you, and no leaven shall be seen with you in all your territory. You shall tell your sons on that day, it is because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt. And it shall be to you as a sign on your hand and as a memorial between your eyes, that the law of the Lord may be in your mouth. For with a strong hand, the Lord has brought you out of Egypt. You shall therefore keep this statute at its appointed time from year to year. When the Lord brings you in the, into the land of the Canaanites, as he swore to you and your fathers, and shall give it to you, you shall set apart to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn of your animals that are males shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem with a lamb, or if you will not redeem it, you shall break its neck. Every firstborn of man among your sons you shall redeem. And when, in time to come, your son asks you, what does this mean? You shall say to him, by a strong hand, the Lord brought us out of Egypt from the house of slavery. For when Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. It shall be as a mark on your hand or frontlets between your eyes, for by a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt. When the Pharaoh let the people go, God did not lead them by the way of the Philistines, although that was near. For God said, lest the people change their minds when they see war and return to Egypt. But God led the people around by the way of the wilderness toward the Red Sea. And the people of Israel went up out of the land of Egypt equipped for battle. Moses took the bones of Joseph with him, for Joseph had made the sons of Egypt, uh, sorry, of Israel solemnly swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones with you from here. And they moved on from Sakoth and encamped at Etham on the edge of the wilderness. And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. This is God's word. Uh, here at this climactic moment in the story, you may have noticed there's a strange literary patterning that narrative and liturgy keep going back and forth. We kind of just want to say, okay, what happens next in the story? And then we pause for a series of instructions about how to keep various ceremonies. This pattern of mixing narrative and liturgy has two effects. It slows down the story and so raises the narrative tension. If you're reading this for the first time, you're thinking, okay, are they going to escape? Has the Lord finally won? What's going to happen next? But also by putting all these liturgies embedded in the narrative, it stresses the importance of this moment, this exodus. There's three things I want you to see from this passage this morning. God rescues a people. 
God gives ways to remember and explain redemption, and then God claims the redeemed as his own. First, God rescues a people. God rescues a people. The people who are leaving Exodus or uh, Egypt in the story in Exodus aren't like so many uh, commuters that happen to be on the same bus heading to the same destination. It's not just a crowd with no connection leaving the land. They are an organized people. Indeed, God's very act of rescuing forms Israel into a people. God rescues people, or a people, a group of people, not just individuals. And incidentally, this is part of the reason why Paul says in Romans 9 through 11 that the Jews as a people have an ongoing significance in God's plan. Well, up until this point, the Israelites looked back to a common ancestor, Abraham. That was the thing that tied them together in their identity. But now they share a common rescue story, how God delivered them from Egypt. And by the end of the book, they will share a common law and a common way of life given at Mount Sinai, a common worship around the tabernacle. God rescues and forms a people. And this pattern continues today. God's salvation indeed transforms individual lives, but individual lives are reformed as part of a common people. Christians are called to be members of churches, and the church as a whole is called to be Christ's body in the world. We see several variations on this basic theme of God forming a people in our passage. First, God rescues an organized people. Uh, in this passage, Israel starts to be described as an army. 1241 says, on that very day, all the hosts, or maybe better English is all the battalions of the Lord went out from the land of Egypt. Again, 1251, on that very day, the Lord brought the people out of the land of Egypt by their hosts or battalions. Uh, I forgot to include it, but somewhere here it says that they came up equipped for battle. Uh, it, here it is. It's in uh, uh, 1318. This military language runs throughout the passage. In 1236, God gives Israel favor with the Egyptians, and so the Egyptians give Israel silver and gold and clothes, and it functions as a repayment for all the slave labor that Israel did for Egypt. But the narrator describes this as plundering the Egyptians. Plundering is what happens after a battle. The winning side goes out on the field and picks through the bodies to collect the armor and weapons and all, you know, anything that's valuable from the battlefield. And it's saying that's what Israel did to Egypt. In a sense, God has won the victory. Israel gets the spoils. And then 1237 uh, uses more military language, although it's not obvious in English. Um, our church Bible, if you're using the Pew Bible, reads about 600,000 men on foot besides women and children. But this word uh, men is not the ordinary word for man in contrast to woman, but it's the word that's used in, in 2 Samuel to refer to David's mighty men. It's saying this is how many fighting men went up. And likewise, that phrase on foot never just means going for a walk. It always means you know, foot soldier, infantry men. So the sense here is that uh, 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 these soldiers are going out organized. And then again, women and children, it translates a single word that roughly means non-combatants. The women, those too young, too old, unable to fight. It's all military language. 
Israel leaves Egypt as an organized army. And we have to pause here for a question, uh, just a moment. How many people actually go up? And uh, my wife can tell you I kept wrestling all week. How in-depth do I go in here? And what I did is cheated and put it in footnotes that no one's ever going to read because I couldn't bear to delete it. So if you want to talk about how many people at length, we can talk more uh, after service. This word 600,000, that word thousand can mean thousand, but the word is also used to refer to military units, maybe a platoon, and it's also used to refer to herds and clans. And I think, again, since all the rest of the language in this verse is military language, what it's saying is that 600 platoons plus non-combatants journeyed out of Egypt. It does lower the traditional number of two or three million uh, down quite a bit to less than 100,000. That's not questioning the reliability of the Bibles. It's simply saying that our English translations are always interpretations, and at times we have to rethink that. Again, uh, I'm happy to talk more at length about that after service, but we'll just keep moving for now in the heat of the day here. Um, Israel's organized like an army, and then finally, what do we see at the end of chapter 13? They go out of the land led by a captain. And who is the captain? The Lord himself who rescues his people and then leads them, symbolized by a pillar of cloud during the day, which appears as a sort of luminous fire at night. God's glory and presence goes with his people and leads them. Israel is a pilgrim people following the Lord's lead, and God himself is a wise commander. He recognizes that although Israel is equipped for battle, they're not yet trained for battle. And so if they encounter the Philistines on the way to Canaan, they'll turn around and head back to Egypt with their tail between their legs. So he leads them the long way through the wilderness to give them time to prepare before they see battle. God rescues an organized people. He also rescues a mixed people. Look again at, at, at 12, 37, and 38. God rescues soldiers and non-combatants, women, children, elderly, infirm. God rescues Israelites and a mixed multitude. We can't go too quickly over that little note there in 1238. A large mixed group of people who are not Israelites also leave Egypt with Israel. It may have included other people who were enslaved and thought we're going with these guys. It could have included those Egyptians who heeded the Lord's warnings earlier. If you've been here earlier weeks, we've seen that in these plague stories, but it's Israelites and a bunch of others that go with them. Welcoming the nations, the Gentiles, within the people of God is not new to the New Testament. Throughout her history, Israel was in principle open to a mixed multitude being joined to her. Wouldn't that be a great description for our church? Mixed multitude church. Okay, Jews and Gentiles, those who grew up in the church, those who have never set foot in a church before, a mixed multitude following the Lord together. Finally, God rescues a worshiping people. Uh, for the first time in chapters 12, 11, 12, 13, Israel is referred to as a congregation and an assembly. But it's only in the context of the instructions for keeping the Passover feast, the unleavened bread, these different worship services that Israel now has a common identity, and so it can be called an assembly, a congregation. They're not just a mixed group of people anymore. They have a common identity. Again, this pattern continues into God's work today. 
The church is formed as God's people as we join together in worship. When we are a congregation, an assembly, celebrating God's sacraments, sitting together under God's words, singing God's praises, we're shaped to share a common character. Well, this leads us to the second point that I want you to see. God gives ways to remember and explain redemption. God gives ways to remember and explain redemption. That's what the Passover and Feast of Unleavened Bread are all about, remembering and explaining redemption, bringing future generations into this saving faith. So these celebrations are connected back to redemption. 1242 says, On the Passover night, the Lord kept watch. It was a night of watching by the Lord. He protected them. He guarded them to bring them out of the land of Egypt. And so this same night is a night of watching, a vigil, a celebration kept to the Lord by all the people of Israel. Okay, that's, uh, it's, it's rooting the Passover celebration in what God has done. 13.3 likewise says, remember this day in which you came out from Egypt. Okay, that's the basic command, remember. These aren't just one-off events, but they're meant to be kept alive, the Lord's redemption, year after year through these celebrations. Uh, Passover, there's already been some in-depth Passover uh, instructions given earlier in chapter 12, but now in light of the mixed multitude, Moses gives a few more instructions in verses 43 through 49. It's a little bit repetitive there, but the basic message is this. Uh, uh, no foreigner can eat the Passover as a foreigner, but anyone who wants to join Israel is welcome to join Israel in the celebration of the Passover, so long as the men are circumcised. Okay, sometimes tourists, when we travel to a foreign country, they go to religious services, maybe a Buddhist temple, something like that, just as a tourist to see what's going on there. And what Moses is saying here is tourists can't come and celebrate the Passover just as something to do on vacation. If you want to join in the Passover, foreigners must make a decision to be identified with Israel by the sign of the covenant, by circumcision. Circumcision is the covenant sign given to Abraham. And by circumcision, one is saying, in effect, what Ruth says, your people shall be my people, your God shall be my God. It's an expression of faith, a commitment. Again, that same logic carries over into the church. Okay? Like Passover, the Lord's Supper is a recurring covenant meal, a reminder and an explanation of God's work of redemption in Christ. But to participate in that covenant meal, you're meant to first receive the sign of the new covenant, which is baptism. The church isn't trying to be exclusive by keeping people from the Lord's table, but rather it's saying, if you want the covenant to be renewed, you have to be in the covenant in the first place. And so there's this mark of baptism. Uh, in verse 46, there's some additional instructions. Don't tear apart the body, so you eat it in different houses, the body of the lamb. Don't take the food outside. It's all to be eaten together. And verse 49 makes the same point. Uh, there shall be one law for the native and for the stranger. It's saying, if you're sharing this meal with others, don't kind of give them some of the meat and tell them to go to their own house. It's not the adults inside, the kids outside doing their own thing. It's all together as one body eating this meal. There's one common meal for one common people. And then Passover is followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And again, these instructions develop what's already given. The significance of unleavened bread in the first instance is Israel was, uh, the, the, the chance to escape Egypt was so sudden that they didn't have time uh, 
for their dough to rise. Uh, we're told that twice in chapter 12. They just throw their dough in the mixing bowl and put the mixing bowl in their cloak and take off. There's no time for the dough to rise. And so in part, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, it's a reminder of how sudden God's victory was, how sudden the exodus from Egypt was. But then there's further significance to this as well. Israel has been in Egypt for 430 years at this point. That's 200 years longer than the United States has been a country. Okay, that's a long time to live somewhere. Everyone who's coming out has been born in the land. They're used to the Egyptian way of doing things, and now there's a sudden break. Well, the Egyptian way of doing things seems to have been to use brewer's yeast to raise your dough. Uh, uh, we know that at least some bakeries were located next to breweries in ancient Egypt. And so Israel probably would have gone to these breweries, bought some brewer's yeast to raise their dough, pinched off some of that dough to use for the next batch, and that cycle continues. So the leaven represents the old way of life, the Egyptian way of life. It's using Egyptian resources to raise your dough. But now Israel is making a fresh start, and so they clean out all that Egyptian leaven. They don't use any more of that dough. They have new leaven for a new life. And then each year they do this as a sort of reset, a reminder. And that seems in line with the significance Paul sees to this feast in 1 Corinthians 5. Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven of malice and evil, but the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Okay, it has spiritual significance. Well, God gave these festivals and ceremonies not only to remember, but also to explain redemption, to pass it on to the next generation. And so we're told that these things are meant to be as a sign on your hand and a memorial between your eyes. It's like a visible reminder, practicing these liturgies. And the importance of catechism is stressed. In 13.8 it says, You shall tell your son on that day, it's because of what the Lord did for me when I came out of Egypt that we celebrate this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Again, 13.14, When in time to come your son asks, What does this mean? Say to him, By a strong hand the Lord brought us out of Egypt, from the house of slavery. Notice in one case, the child asks the question. In the other case, the parent explains the meaning without any question being asked. Uh, we should both take op uh, 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 not miss opportunities when kids ask questions, but we should also look for opportunities, object lessons, to explain God's redemption. Again, this has importance for how we live life together as a church. Our liturgy and worship isn't rote ceremonies that we just go through week after week. It's meant to remind and explain God's redemption in Christ. And so in church, I should hope that we hear whispers, perhaps not too loudly, as adults explain to the children next to them what's happening, as kids ask questions. Why are we doing these things? Don't waste opportunities when kids are asking questions. Now, I know this is totally unrealistically idealistic, but even on the way to church, in an ideal world, parents are explaining to kids, you know, this is what we're going to be doing when we get to church. And I, I know what ground, life on the ground is like, but it's an ideal to have out there. After service, kids, quiz the adults. Uh, it doesn't have to be your parents, other adults. Ask them, you know, why did we do this thing? Adults, quiz the kids. Why did we do that? God gives us ways, structured worship, liturgy, festivals throughout the year, to remember and explain redemption. One of those ways we haven't touched on yet, and here's where I want to wrap up. The dedication of the firstborn. This brings us to the last point that I want you to see. 
God claims the redeemed as his own. God claims the redeemed as his own. In the ancient world, uh, wealth was typically... uh, Actually, I'm just going to skip past that. Sorry. Keep moving here. Uh, What does redemption mean? The term's used a number of times that God has redeemed you from the land. Redemption, redeeming, is fundamentally buying back. And so in Israel, if family property went up on the market, family members were expected to buy or redeem it, to keep it in the extended family. If a relative fell into debt, a kinsman redeemer could pay off that debt and so redeem their relative. Now the Exodus is about both deliverance and redemption. Deliverance is rescue. They're set free from Pharaoh. But redemption is about being bought. Uh, If you'll excuse wordplay, the Lord brought us and bought us out of Egypt is kind of the idea going on here in Exodus. 1315 spells this out. When the Pharaoh stubbornly refused to let us go, the Lord killed all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both the firstborn of man and the firstborn of animals. Therefore, I sacrifice to the Lord all the males that first opened the womb, but all the firstborn of my sons I redeem. Okay, the Lord passing through the land, as we considered last week, should have meant death for all the firstborn, Israel as well as Egyptian. But instead, the Lord redeems Israel. He buys their life through the substitute of the Passover lamb. And then as a sign, a reminder of this redemption, all of Israel's firstborn belonged to the Lord. The firstborn edible animals were to be sacrificed to the Lord, The firstborn non-edible animals were to be ransomed from the Lord. The children, of course, were to be bought back, Numbers tells us, for five shekels. Okay, The Lord claims those who he redeems as his own. He's saying, I bought you, now you belong to me. Maybe you remember back in Exodus chapter 4, God says to Pharaoh, Israel is my firstborn son, let Israel go to serve me. If you don't, I will kill your firstborn son. All of Israel is like a firstborn son to the Lord. Therefore, the, the, the ceremony of the dedicating the firstborn son is a sign that all Israel belongs to the Lord. Okay? The Exodus isn't just about Israel being led to the border of Egypt and then told, you're free now, go wherever you want. Exodus entails redemption, an exchange of a life for a life, and therefore Israel now belongs to the Lord. They serve him. But whereas serving Pharaoh meant bondage, bitterness, oppression, death, serving the Lord means freedom and life. The characteristic way that Israel served Pharaoh was by back-breaking brick-making. The characteristic way that Israel serves the Lord is by this Passover meal, a family lamb supper that would involve staying up late at night, telling stories of God's redemption, drinking glasses of wine, a time of celebration. You see the difference? Back-breaking brick-making versus rejoicing. That's the difference between serving Pharaoh, serving the Lord. There's a sign that God has redeemed Israel as his own, and he claims them as his own. The firstborn animals are sacrificed. The firstborn children are bought back. And the sign that God claims the redeemed as his own, the, or sorry, the sign of the firstborn being dedicated to the Lord as a sign that the Lord claims the redeemed as his own is taken up in the New Testament, where Christ is three times or thrice over identified as the firstborn. 
Colossians 1 tells us Christ is the firstborn of all creation, the image of the invisible God. What does that mean? Uh, Hebrews 1 cashes that out as saying uh, he's the appointed heir of all things through whom God created the world. Okay, the firstborn son had a larger portion of the inheritance. It's saying Christ is like the firstborn of creation. All things are his inheritance. But second, he's the firstborn, this firstborn heir of all creation enters the world and is the firstborn of the Virgin Mary, who along with Joseph dedicates Jesus in the temple. And so Luke tells us when the time came for purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord as it is written in the law. And here's this quote from Exodus. Every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And while they're there dedicating Jesus in the temple as the firstborn belonging to the Lord, this elderly man, Simeon, who has been waiting for God's redemption, asks to hold baby Jesus, and he takes him in his arms, and he says, My eyes have seen your salvation, O Lord, that you have prepared in the presence of all people a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. Christ, who's the firstborn of all creation, who's the heir of all things, through whom all things is created, comes into the world as Mary's firstborn, as a light to the Gentiles, so that this mixed multitude can come along with Israel as a, the glory of Israel. But then the firstborn of all creation, the firstborn of Mary, is called the firstborn from the dead in both Revelation and again in Colossians. What happens in the Passover? The, the firstborn of the Egyptians are struck down so that God could deliver his people from the bondage to the Pharaoh. And it says a number of times in Exodus, this is going to be a sign for all nations that they can see the Lord's justice. And wouldn't it be great if after Pharaoh was struck down and his firstborn, then all the other nations said, let's just never do oppression again. Let's never do injustice again. Everything's going to be fine and we have peace on earth. Well, that would be great, but we all know that's not what happened. Okay? That's one problem, Pharaoh, one specific instance of a larger problem. The larger problem that we all given the opportunity, we'll oppress our neighbor, that we all are in bondage to sin, to death, to futility. And to truly ransom his people, what does it take? Not striking down the firstborn of his enemies, but striking his own firstborn, Christ Jesus, who died, but then rose again as the firstborn from the dead, so that we too might rise with him. A mixed multitude of adopted children following him into the freedom of belonging to God. God rescues a people. God gives that people a way to remember and to explain that redemption work. And God claims those he redeems. You, he claims as his own. You belong to him. That's that new song we've been singing. I am not my own, I belong to him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you did not strike us down, although we deserve it, but that your own son came into the world and was struck in our place so that we might have freedom, that we might be redeemed and called your own. Give us now, Lord, the strength to walk as your people as we celebrate and worship together, form us as your people. May we use liturgy and the sacraments you've given us 
and worship as ways to remember and explain your work, to pass it on to the next generation. Help us all adults in this church to be faithful in training up the children of this church. Give the children hearts to learn about your redemption and walking in the faith that is being passed on to them. Lord, through Christ's work, make us a mixed multitude to your glory. Amen.